This is tax update number 8 for July 30th, 2005. This week's tax update podcast is What's Up Doc? Medical Reimbursement Plans and the Closely Held Business. Again, this tax update podcast is intended for tax professionals and not designed for those who are not skilled in independent tax research. All readers and listeners are expected to do their own research to confirm items raised in this presentation before relying on any positions presented. And the podcast and the document associated with the podcast may be reproduced freely so long as no fee is charged for the use of the document or the podcast. Such prohibited use would include using this podcast or document as part of a CPE presentation for which a fee is charged. Today we're going to look at medical reimbursement plans. This is a continuation of what we discussed when we were looking at the self-employed medical plans a little while back, the self-employed medical insurance deduction. Now we're going to look at medical reimbursement plans as another medical option. Medical reimbursement plans represent a method allowed under Section 105 for an allowing an employer to provide a benefit to employees of the organization, not taxable to the employee, but deductible to the employer when paid for, in, for medical care. The other main option that we find doing this is medical insurance provided under Section 106. Now, medical reimbursement plans have a number of quirks that make them less than popular in some cases. Uh, when you're dealing with various issues and in various situations. In fact, there are a number of quirks, but they do work great in certain situations. And a preparer needs to be aware of the fact, a tax professional needs to be aware, I should say, of the fact that these plans are out there and may be the perfect fit for a client in the correct situation. The IRS even highlighted such plans under a new name back in 2002 in IRS Notice 2002 and some additional details of how such a plan would work were amplified in Revenue Ruling 2005-24, some of the limitations on such a plan. Uh, the plans are close relatives of a flexible spending account, except the entire funding is done by employer contributions. So the employee does not set aside funds into an account to be used, but the employer actually provides for and pays for the medical expenses. Let us discuss the options here. The basic requirements for such a plan. Section 105A provides that benefits received attributable to employer contributions to accident health plans are not including the employee's income. An important initial consideration that will cause us a bit of a hassle with these plans as we get started is that those who are considered self-employed, proprietors and partners, are not considered employees for this purpose. You remember they are considered employees when we talk about the qualified plan arena, but in this case they are specifically not to be considered employees for purpose of coverage, so that means they are not eligible to be covered. As well, remember that greater greater than 2% owners of an S corporation are deemed to be such proprietors, not covered. And in S corporation status, we also have to include all individuals who are considered to be owners of those shares by attribution under Section 318. For instance, a shareholder's spouse is also considered to own the shares. Now, that's a difference from what we see for proprietor, and that's important. Section 105.8 imposes a special condition on self-insured medical reimbursement plans. In fact, this is the key to the concept of self-insurance. A plan is considered self-insured unless reimbursement is provided under an individual group health insurance policy of a licensed insurance company or under a prepaid medical care arrangement that is regulated under federal or state law in a manner similar to the regulation of insurance companies. This definition is found in Regulation 1.105-11B1i. 
The plan must involve a shifting of risks and cannot be underwritten by a private insurance company. Again, those two cases are considered not to be insurance. They are considered to be a self-insured plan. So a plan that does not involve the shifting of risk but involves and is or is underwritten by a captive insurance company will be considered a self-insured plan for these purposes. If the plan is partially underwritten by insurance, the rules apply only to the part not covered by insurance. For instance, if you provide that you have provide your employees with medical insurance, but the company will pay their deductible when incurred, the part of the plan that applies to paying the deductible is considered a self-insured plan and is subject to these rules. A self-insured plant is subject to two specific sets of rules that impact the highly compensated employees. So obviously a key first question is, what's a highly compensated employee? Well, a highly compensated employee falls into one of the following three classes. And if you're looking for some consistency here with the definitions that you find in the qualified plan arena, don't hope for such things. Congress rarely gets things consistent, even when they use the same term. For purposes of a Section 105 plan, a highly compensated employee is one of the five highest paid officers of the corporation, a greater than 10% shareholder of the employer, including stock deemed under the attribution rules of 318, or among the highest paid 25% of all employees of the employer, other than employees allowed to be excluded under Section 105H3B who are actually excluded from participation. And that's a category we'll consider later because that can be important in determining if a plan is going to work or would make sense for your client. The plan must meet two tests with regard to this group. Now, a key factor to remember, this is like qualified plans. We are comparing highly compensated to non-highly compensated. And as is the case in qualified plans, if you have a situation where there are no non-highly compensated that would need to be covered by the plan, you have basically a lot fewer problems. The situation simplifies down rather quickly. We are going to presume, though, that if you have non-highly compensated, then you have to worry about these tests. So we take a look at it. First, the plan must show it does not discriminate in favor of the highly compensated in terms of eligibility to participate in the plan. You, Unlike the insurance coverage, where literally it could be restricted to the highly compensated, if that's your class of employees who are covered, in this plan we cannot restrict eligibility to merely the highly compensated. We are not granted carte blanche to effectively pick and choose who's going to be in the plan. Second, if it passes that test, it must show the actual benefits provided do not discriminate in favor of the highly compensated participants. If the plan fails either of these tests, some or all the reimbursement may be taxable to the participant. Okay. Let's look at eligibility. What do we have to have a non-discriminatory plan in terms of eligibility? Again, we need to meet this test if the entire amount being paid on behalf of the highly compensated is going to be excluded from income. There are two mechanical tests and then a facts of circumstances test that can be used to determine if we meet the eligibility discrimination rules. The mechanical test provides that a plan that actually benefits either 70% or more of all employees of the employer or 80% or more of all employees eligible to benefit under the plan if 70% or more of the employees are eligible to benefit under the plan, of the employer employees are eligible to benefit under the plan then the plan is deemed to be non-discriminatory as to eligibility. Okay, so you do a simple math test there, see if you cover. 
Normally, the way it is handled is you cover everybody since the 70% test, if you have a small organization, may be difficult to keep in line if you have people in and out of the plan. Usually, we look at 100% inclusion. Alternatively, the plan can be held to be non-discriminatory if employees qualify under classification found by the IRS to not be discriminatory in favor of the highly compensated employees of facts and circumstances. Regulation 1.10511C2 I provides that such determination will be based on the facts and circumstances. Using the same standards as are applied under IRC Section 410B1B without regard to the special rules of Section 401A5 considering eligibility to participate in the plan. However, what's important when doing these tests is there are categories of employees that can be excluded. Much like with qualified plans, there are certain employees we don't have to consider. However, the universe of employees we don't have to consider in a medical reimbursement plan is larger than it is in a qualified plan generally. A plan can exclude from counting and computing these tests employees who have not completed three years of service with the employer. They can exclude employees who have not obtained age 25 prior to the beginning of the plan year. It can include exclude part-time or seasonal employees, and we'll come back to that in a second because that one takes some explanation, as well as employees covered by a collective bargaining agreement or non-resident aliens who receive no income from the employer that constitutes income from sources within the United States. Now, the part-time or seasonal employee exception is subject to some very specific rules found in the regulation. And generally, part-time employees go into three classifications and the same thing happens with seasonal. We have three classes. The for sure you don't have to cover, the for sure you have to cover, and the group that says it depends whether you do or don't based upon some other tests determine if they truly are part-time or seasonal given your business. Let's consider part-time. Basically under the regulations a part-time employee working less than 25 hours a week can be excluded from coverage, period. Less than 25 hours is by default deemed to be part-time. An employee working more than 35 hours a week normally for the employer is deemed to be not part-time. So there's no out for that employee. So you're, you've got 35 hours or more. You have to be into the mix we're going to consider for testing. 25 hours or less, you can be excluded from that. Now, again, we don't have to cover the more than 35-hour person, but we have to count them in getting to our 70% test, and we have to count them in terms of having a reasonable classification. So, essentially, it's much better for us if they're in the 25 if they're not going to be covered. Now, between 35, 25 and 35 hours, we have a test, and that is... They can be excluded if other employees in a similar position with the same employer work substantially more hours. So I have, let's say, a bookkeeper who works 30 hours a week, but I have three other bookkeepers, all of whom work 40 hours a week. I can exclude the 30-hour-a-week bookkeeper. Or if there is nobody else that is the only bookkeeper that's on my payroll, if other bookkeepers in the industry tend to work more, so I have an accounting firm, let us posit that other bookkeepers and other public accounting firms are working 40 hours a week or more, if that's the normal for the industry, then I can exclude my 30-hour-a-week bookkeeper. Seasonal employees are subject to a similar set of three groups. 
Here the testing goes, if they work set less than seven months during the year, they can be considered seasonal employees, period. If they work more than nine months during the year, they will be considered not seasonal employees. Between nine and seven months, same basic test. If I have other employees who work substantially more than the number of months this individual worked, I can exclude them. Or if other employees in this industry work more than that number of months, I can exclude them. They are considered seasonal employees if they fall in that category. Quite often we're going to consider these plans in cases where we have all the employees fall into one of these excluded classes or we have no other employees. Tax professionals need to recognize cases where this will be the case and move from there. The other discrimination test is discrimination as to benefits. The benefits provided cannot discriminate in favor of the highly compensated individuals. If a benefit is available only to a highly compensated individual, the entire value of that benefit is considered taxable to the highly compensated employee. That we find per Regulation 1.105-11E2. As well, a benefit that varies based on the level of compensation is considered to discriminate in terms of the benefits offered. Regulation 1.105-11C3I. That doesn't mean we can't limit the benefits we offer, but if I say I'm going to provide health care benefits, I'm going to reimburse you up to $5,000, then that's the limit for everyone. I cannot say I'm going to reimburse you up to 5% of your compensation, at least not for any highly compensated individual. If highly compensated are in the mix, that's a problem, and the highly compensated will have to include that amount in their income. What are covered benefits? The plan can pay for and exclude any expense defined by Internal Revenue Code Section 213A. As the IRS has pointed out, such items include non-prescription drugs, since those are treated as non-deductible by IRC 213B, and this refers to A for the definition of what can be excluded. However, you must account for such payments that are made. The employer must document that these were truly medical expenses. You cannot just issue compensation and then claim, well, it was for medical, we thought it was. You're going to have to be able to show that, in fact, these were medical expenses that were paid under the plan and were properly reimbursable. Let us consider the planning issues. Existence of these plans present a couple of major planning issues we have to consider when looking at this. For instance, we have an issue here we need to consider right off of exposure to liability. From a design standpoint, it is one thing if I work for myself. I am Ed Zoller, CPA. I work for myself. I have no other employees. I just run my own office. I do all my work. I don't have any receptionist or anyone. I am contract work. In that scenario, I can afford to say, be very generous and say, I will pay all the expenses of all my employees because the only person involved is myself. But let's say instead of myself, I have myself and one other person as a partner with me. In that case, I may not want to be quite as generous because I may have opened myself up to an unlimited liability to bankrupt the company if my partner becomes ill. Well, I guess it was open if I became ill, but in that case, if 
company runs out of money, I'm running out of money. I don't have money to pay the expense, whichever way it goes. But suddenly now I've taken on somebody else's expense. You need to consider this, and usually a cap of some sort would be in place, and or this would be done in combination with a medical insurance policy, and the reimbursement plan would cover the deductibles or those sorts of issues. But we do need to consider that. If you are covering a number of rank-and-file employees, this can be even larger because, again, you are exposed to the extent of the reimbursement you offer. Now, these plans do have an impact on entity selection. If you have a person who looks like their business, it would make sense. They incur significant medical expenses. They are self-employed. They work only for themselves. They're a one-person service provider they're in a perfect position, you now have an impact that you have to consider that's on your entity selection. The design of this provision of the law, especially the exclusion of the self-employed, gives a major bias towards C-corporations as sponsors of medical reimbursement plans. In a C-corporation, the structure is simple. You can cover the owner. The owner can receive his medical reimbursement. In fact, that's a straightforward reason perhaps to look at a C-corporation when other factors don't suggest you need to look elsewhere. In that situation, the employee pays it. The good news is this isn't included for FICA purposes either, so it's excluded from their income for all purposes. The medical expenses become a benefit deducted by the corporation, not including the employee's income, works great in the C-Corp. Now, there are other problems with the C-Corp that we have to worry about, the double taxation and the potential trapping of an appreciated asset in a C-Corp that causes major problems on liquidation. But from the standpoint of simply the medical reimbursement plan, it works great. Sole proprietorships and partnerships have the problem of a not being able to cover the self-employed. Well, consider the proprietorship. There is a fix there that has been used, and theoretically it might work in a partnership. I've not gone into detail because the reality is it's tough to make this one work, even if you could. But in a sole proprietorship, we may find that the spouse of the owner is working in the business and truly works there. The IRS has endorsed the concept of employing the spouse, you can offer the spouse the medical reimbursement plan and cover the spouse plus the spouse's dependents, therefore bootstrapping the owner in by as being part of the dependent coverage for the spouse. 105 allows such dependent coverage. What's the problem? Well, the first problem is you must legitimately have an employment relationship. You can't just hire your spouse on paper and claim that that person, should be, that person is covered and I can fix this. If my spouse is a full-time neurosurgeon and is spending tons of hours at the hospital, it may be difficult to believe that my spouse is also now somehow coming in and doing work in my accounting firm that's sufficient to enable me to pay her the salary. Maybe that's not believable. Maybe my spouse simply does nothing with the business. My spouse couldn't be found near the place. The IRS can attack on that as well you still have the basic reasonable compensation problems under section 162 to get your deduction. Is the spouse being reasonably compensated when considering the value of the medical reimbursement being offered? In essence, if all my spouse does is one hour worth of filing a year, it's a little difficult to justify paying out a few thousand dollars in medical expenses every year for that person for one hour's worth of work. Doesn't seem to fly. 
That is a problem. Secondly, S-corporations don't have this fix. Remember Section 318, the attribution rules. My spouse is considered to be a greater than 2% owner of my S-corporation and therefore is just as much of a problem as I am in terms of coverage. Even if my spouse works for the S-corporation, my spouse will not be considered an employee for these purposes, but rather considered self-employed. Now, again, remember, this is just one issue that comes into what you consider for entities, but it is important. The most likely entity that you would use if you're going to go the C-Corp route is probably going to be one where you have a service provider who preferably is not in one of the bad service areas that makes a qualified personal service corporation exposed to potentially very high rates, although you can work there. you just got to plan much more carefully. And, but also would have an issue where all the goodwill is personal. There is absolutely nothing. When that person leaves the business, there will be no value. There is nothing of value in the corporation. In that case, this probably works well because there's no real danger of getting double whacked with your income, at least if you do decent planning. Now, a client will have to understand that year-end planning will be important to make sure there are no nasty surprises, especially if it's a qualified personal service corporation. But that can be done and taken care of. Not as good as a situation where we expect there will be an increase in value in the corporation. For instance, a case where we expect that we're going to have some agreements among two owners or more owners that will have employment-related agreements that restrict their ability to compete, therefore making the ownership of any goodwill a corporate asset, looking at the logic of the Martin Ice Cream case and the discussion in that case, a Norwalk about what made it not a corporate asset would turn on you when there is such an agreement that the corporation limits your ability to use that goodwill. Then we would have a problem that maybe we don't want to be a C-Corp because trying to get out of that is going to be a problem. Finally, other options you should consider. Remember, there are other ways to go after this. The obvious method, if it works, medical insurance. Again, a C-Corp's in a better state than an S or a proprietorship, but with a self-employed health insurance deduction, we can get pretty decent treatment, even if not as good as the C-Corp, on the proprietorship and the S-Corp. Caveat to remember, though. To get the deduction for self-employed health insurance, as we discussed in an earlier podcast, you cannot be eligible for coverage that's disqualifying. And we've discussed some of the problems involving the definition of what is disqualifying coverage. A C-Corp can offer medical coverage to anyone, even if they're already covered by another plan. It doesn't matter. As my employee, I can cover them. Therefore, in the C-Corp status, you do have a little bit more flexibility. But if you're S-Corp and you're clean, medical insurance is an obvious option. However, if you're not so clean, then we may need to look at one of these other options where I could still hire my spouse, maybe hire my spouse, put the medical insurance through the spouse. In an S-Corp, you're just kind of out of luck. Unless you have a way around these problems, the S-Corp may present you with a major issue of being unable to get this done. Cafeteria plans and flexible spending accounts are another option. Again, the S-Corp and the proprietorship, it doesn't work on again. Such plans are more expensive to administer, and they make a lot more sense if you have employees who are covered. In that case, we work with it. Finally, health savings account are one more option. They don't have the discrimination problems if the contribution is made by the employee. Since the owner is going to be in the same basic tax position whether they make the contribution or not, essentially we can go ahead and 
go ahead and work with this being not an employer contribution, still get our deduction. However, they require the special insurance account, insurance policy, I should say, and they require you to live with restrictions on that policy that a client may not be happy with, as well as a client may be unhappy about having to change policies. In many cases, it may not be possible to change the policy. Finally, normally we don't use these accounts when we'd have to cover rank and file. To be honest, usually they're not seen, the, the, the medical reimbursement accounts. However, if they are used, sometimes we use them in a non-qualified status. That is, we don't even try to make them qualified. We reimburse and simply have the, have the, um, the shareholders pick up the amounts in income. That's one possibility. If you do want to have some partial coverage, you can compute the ratios if you fail the test. And in that case, the ratio would have an inclusion in income of a percentage based upon the percentage of the plan that didn't meet the discrimination tests over that didn't meet the, the participation, basically the eligibility test. Uh, if it fails benefits, failed benefits are always 100% included in income. But if it fails the test because of the issue of we didn't have a high enough percentage of not rank and file in the plan, then we can take a look at the percentage of benefits paid for the highly compensated over total benefits. And the highly compensated have to include the ratio of that times what was actually deferred for them. So if half of the benefits in the plan went to the highly compensated, half of what we reimburse them for is going to be included in their income. That's the math of this session. This has been the podcast involving medical reimbursement plans, podcast number eight. Again, this is intended for those who can do their own research. You should research the issues raised in this podcast and come to your own conclusions before advising any clients. This is the podcast for July 30th, 2005.